Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. Well, no, good afternoon. It's 2 o'clock Central Standard Time, a little bit later than we normally podcast or broadcast. And thank you guys for tuning in today. Took last week off um, to deal with some issues. But I'm here this Sunday and next Sunday as well. And this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Once again, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. So, you know, guys, thank you so much. I appreciate um, the notes. I appreciate, you know, some of the things that have been taking place over the past several months. And just want to let you know how much I appreciate you guys. You know, I look at the numbers, and I mean, <laughs> even during the time period, um, I guess that our last show then was October 18th, and I ended up taking, you know, several Sundays off from there. But, you know, looking at the numbers, people were still listening and, you know, playing the archives. And, you know, I just want to let you know that I appreciate it. And we have well over 300 shows. And a lot of the information overlaps, which is a good thing because, again, when we talk about these different issues, we try to put it in context, not only historical context, but also in present context so that you can understand what's happening now and how it, it it's directly tied to what happened then. So, you know, it's been really interesting um, the show that I did on identity politics, white identity politics. Um, (laughs) That was actually, you know, a good little series there, and we didn't even get real, you know, really to the meat of that. And so, you know, it's going to make its way back around. I want you guys to know that because, I mean, we only have so much time and only so much energy, so I try to put enough information out there to pique your interest so that, you know, you'll go out and do some research for yourself you know, fact check some of the information that we put out there, and that's fine. You know, um, I have no problem, you know, when I say or do something wrong or forget, you know, and uh, (laughs) it's just, it's really interesting. Um, So, you know, I wanted to talk about a few things that have been happening, you know, up to this point, and, you know, some of the news stories. So last night, we had the Democratic debate. Now, I don't know who decided to do that debate on a Saturday night. You know, it's it's just ridiculous. And it's right before the Christmas season as well. So we know that a lot of people were out, you know, if not shopping, you know, Christmas parties, you know, a number of different things that were happening. And I actually even forgot about the debate until, you know, a friend of mine and I were texting And they were like, well, I'm going to watch the debate. And so I said, okay, great. And they said, well, I can call you and we can watch the debate together. And that's what we ended up doing. So you had a chance to be pretty snarky about some of the things that were presented last night, you know, during the debate. And like I said, you know, one of the things 
that kind of got my attention because it felt like an O'Malley infomercial. You know, when he was just, when he was talking, he was, you know, trying, and I understand, he's been lagging in the polls, and and he hasn't been getting the attention that he deserves. And the thing is, is that I actually like the guy. However, as a, as a person, as a politician, he's full of crap. And he was very disingenuous with a lot of his responses. I saw the wire. I saw the corner. We know what the hell is happening up there in Baltimore. And we, you know, and here's Raina. Hey, Raina. Hey, what's going on? Hey, I'm talking about your guy, O'Malley, and how he was um, how he my guy. last night. I never <laughs> voted for him. Word. I never voted for him as <laughs> as mayor or as governor. So he can't be my guy. Oh, he's not okay. Cousin. Nah. <laughs> right. So, you know, the whole thing was interesting. Like I said, it was like he had this big old infomercial. And so my friend and I, we were talking about his responses and how well rehearsed they were and evasive. And so we both decided that maybe he should be press secretary for whoever wins because he was pretty good at that, you know, sticking to his talking points, nothing more, nothing less. But it's just interesting. But I doubt if he'll take that position, especially when he was running for president. But um, what was interesting about the debate last night is the fact that Black Lives Matter came up. And so, you know, I was happy that it came up, but I felt that the question that was posed to the, you know, um, debaters up there, I felt that the question was very limited. And that is the reason why we only got really short responses and no, you know, real specifics as far as I'm concerned. And I'll put this out there again because I've said this on several occasions. Number one, I'm not for any of the candidates at this point. I haven't decided who I was going to vote for. And, you know, last night I'm just looking at them all just, you know, talking in circles. But I want someone to ask Hillary if she's going to roll back a lot of the policies and laws that were implemented by her husband that set this country on a collision course. And, you know, they've are, she's already stated that she's not going to roll back the deregulation of the stock market, the deregulation of, you know, um, banking. And, and, and these were some of the things, you know, that 2007, 2008, when we had that bubble because these hedge fund managers were selling worthless pieces of paper and, you know, especially the decade or two before then when, when you had a lot of people going out and were able to, um, you know, get mortgages that they couldn't really afford, not understanding that, you know, getting a variable, you know, rate on their mortgage could prove to be disastrous. Some people got sucked into the balloon payment, you know, a number of different things. And so, Everybody thought that, you know, good old happy days were back in America, and (laughs) it was a trick. And even some of you out there, you know, you had people in your church, sometimes it would be the pastor's wife, who all of a sudden had, you know, either a a mortgage brokerage or a real, real estate brokerage. And, you know, they were telling you God wanted you to have a house. Just all of that played a part into it, and because of that, 
and the pop that took place in 2007-2008, blacks and Latinos lost a lot of the wealth that had been acquired over generations. And this is why some of us are saying that we are in a worse position than our grandparents were. And so, you know, you have to pay attention to these things, but, yeah, you know, Hillary, we need to get specific. I mean, right now she's the front runner, and, you know, I'll give Bernie Sanders some credit when he was talking about Black Lives Matter and his stance on that. And, you know, my whole thing is seeing is believing, but at this point in time, no one is really asking Hillary, or or basically when they do, she deflects. And, (laughs) you know, guys, we have to do something. Like I say, go get registered to vote. It's important that you get registered to vote, and then you go and do it. And I believe Uber will be offering a program giving people free rides to the polling place. So I'm going to do some more research on that. And if that's the case, I think we need to take full advantage, you know, of that, especially the people who do not get a chance to go out and vote because after the Supreme Court finished, you know, you have a lot of these states that have stopped early voting have stopped weekend voting, closed down, you know, some of their Department of Mobile vehicles. And so you have all of that happening. And so, again, guys, you know, educate yourselves on the details of what's happening. And then also, you know, what's interesting is you see a lot of these pastors, white and black, influencing their flock or congregants, if you will. And, you know, what's interesting is, again, with the prosperity gospel and word of faith, and anyone who knows me knows I'm not real fond of them. But, you know, it's interesting because they're still selling the idea to their congregation that they are millionaires and billionaires delayed and then encouraging them to vote on a more conservative you know, um, you know, platform. And so it's just really, guys. And even the ones who aren't word of faith, like that E.W. Jackson fellow, you know, who exactly. is basically, you know, backing Trump, you know, mm-hmm. and some of those, exactly. and, and a few of those black pastors that came out of that meeting backing Trump. But um, going back to what you were talking about with Hillary, it's not just the financial um you know, oh, legislation yeah, that her husband passed that you need to, you know, uh, question her about. It's it's even the drug policy, especially now because she and, and all of these other politicians have so much compassion now for heroin right. addicts in and, right. and, 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 you know, rural um, locations and, and right. uh, mm-hmm. you know, and cold, they want to talk hurt. about treatment. Right. Mm-hmm. They want to talk about treatment and, you know, all that other type of stuff. But, exactly. um, you know, where was any of this compassion or, or where is it now even for, you right. know, black people who basically were um, black families that were, um, you know, devastated by the drug war, you know, that her husband exactly. initiated. That, not, well, he didn't initiate it, but he, he definitely escalated it. 
Exactly. And I agree with you 100%, you know, with, mm-hmm. you know, the, the legislation for, you know, because, again, a lot of people, you know, some, some people miss this, but there are two different types of sentencing. You know, it was a lighter sentencing for cocaine than there was for crack. You know, mm-hmm. and and we need to go back and take a look at that. But not only you know with the financial aspect, with the you know with the um, with the market as well as you know the mortgaging. But yeah, you know, like you said, with the drug laws and also that welfare to work program. Mm-hmm. You know, and that contract with America, and especially NAFTA. Oh my goodness, you have people in this country complaining because a lot of the blue collar jobs that were once there that promised a quote unquote middle class lifestyle to particularly white men, those left and went, you know, to Central America, South America, Mexico, you know, because of Asia, NAFTA. some of them, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. You know, but I just wanted to kind of put things in context because, you know, we need to ask Hillary about those things. Are you going to fix what your husband broke? You mm-hmm. know, because what's interesting is, you know, when you start looking at this, and we can't necessarily look at everything just from, you know, an American point of view, we're gonna we need to start thinking globally, because what's happening is you have these Republicans and they're trying to set no minimum wage, and then make us compete with poor countries like China and India. You know, I don't consider Africa, you know, a poor continent. You know, there are several different countries within Africa. But the thing is, is that they're trying to drive down salaries and wages. And this is mm-hmm. one of the reasons why we say that these unions are important, guys. So, I mean, there are a number of things that Bill did that, you know, we need to ask Hillary what she's going to do about that. And not just that, you know? but she supported a lot of this stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, she was a vocal mm-hmm. advocate you know, on behalf of some of these policies, including the drug policies, you know what I mean? So we should, uh, we definitely should hold her accountable for that, you know? Where was all this compassion before? And, you know, what do you intend to do as president um, about, you know, people who essentially were jailed and and, um, criminalized? Um, by your husband and his policies that you supported, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, you know, taking it back to what I said originally, listening to O'Malley, and he was talking about all the great he did in Baltimore, and I'm like, okay, I must have been on a totally different, you know, parallel universe, and so it made me go find my DVD of The Corner. And I can watch mm-hmm. The Wire on demand because I'm like, I know what I saw. And, I mean, I know those are shows and things like that, but it, it was based in reality. Right. You know, and, I mean, and, and it's, for his part, though, uh-huh. for most of that, for, I mean, just, I mean, talking about context, for most of The Wire, for what, you know, the context of The Wire, O'Malley was not in office. He was not yet right. in office. Most of what's going on in The Wire is a referencing stuff that goes back to Kurt Smoke and um, even before Smoke, um, you know. So it's uh-huh. um, you know it, it, yes. it goes back to much earlier mayors and and earlier things. But the the essence the essence of what's going on and the corruption in Baltimore is definitely uh, true. I mean, actually, I was just exactly. looking at an article the other day that was talking about um, how. 
um, black political power is not sufficient um, to uh, change a lot of these issues that are going on in Baltimore. You need um, something stronger than that because, unfortunately, um, you know, black people in Baltimore, they vote. They vote. We have we have representation on the city council. We've had black mayors. We've had, um, you know, we've had blacks represented in almost every level of the city government. Um, right. But that's not the issue. The issue is that um, corporate interests in Baltimore are heavily represented. Um, exactly. It's 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 the same issue um, that really is coming or is somewhat coming to light. Although you know, if you ask DC residents, um, it has been an issue for a long time. But it's the same sort of issue that you're seeing with Muriel Bowser. You know, a lot of people voted for Muriel Bowser in DC. Uh-huh. And, you know, of course, uh, now, especially with this situation with the Pepco Exelon merger, um, a lot right. of people are looking at her sideways because it seems that um, her people, you know, her various, you know, people high up in her campaign and people who work directly for her um, are basically in industry's pocket. And so, you know, this Exelon Pepco merger is supposed is being represented as something that will benefit um residents of the of the district. But um it, it, you know, that remains to be seen and, and a lot of people are highly skeptical and should be highly skeptical. <laughs> but, right. um, but yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the same thing it's the same thing in Baltimore. I mean, it's um at this point, it's it's just not enough. We need um, what we need is, I mean, we need a lot of things, and I'm, I'm not really an right. expert on any of on all of those things. Um, but you know, some people are feeling like the situation is rather hopeless. You know, we had the situation with Freddie Gray, and of course now in the city we're prosecuting um, the people who are basically responsible for his death. You know, whether you want to say they murdered him or not, they're responsible for his death. Um, you know, their the trial was you know ended in a mistrial for Mr. Porter, the first officer tried. You know, so there's a lot of and there's a lot of people in Baltimore who just feel like um, the prospect of justice and the prospect of equality and uh, uh-huh. you know and econ- economic you know um, parity in the district right. in Baltimore is just um, it's just too remote. It's just too remote. Right. Right, and, you know, the last point I was going to make about your guy O'Malley, and I agree, he came after, you know, those particular eras that were displayed and, 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 you know, um, discussed in The Corner and The Wire. However, you know, he came after that. However, heroin use went up, especially amongst white people. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the point that I'm making overall. It's like he said he reduced A, B, C, D, and E, but the numbers don't show that. Right. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. No, right. absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, about the only thing that anyone, I mean, about the only thing that I'm probably willing to give him credit for at all is um, he he was rather liberal in his stance on gay marriage and, you know, and he signed gay marriage into law. So, you know, whoopee for that, you know, but there's like a billion <laughs> other things that he needed to do, you know. <laughs> Oh yeah, oh yeah. But speaking, but speaking of gay marriage, thank you. Good segue into the next thing. Okay, I posted an article on my wall. I think I posted it yesterday or the day before, 
And the title of the article is Why the Growing Alliance Between Police and White LGBTQIA Plus Folks is a Problem. All right. So <laughs> I didn't know they had an alliance, but but yes, continue. <laughs> yes. So what was happening and this is, you know, coming from an account in Philadelphia and I know what's happening here in Chicago over in Boys Town, you know, over there on Halstead North Side and they've had some of the same issues. So what's happening is you have, you know, um young people of color you know, going to these very liberal, um, LGBTQ-friendly and occupied um, areas of town, you know, very Mm -hmm. affluent, most of them. And so you have the young black and Latino and Asian kids coming over there to the centers because Center on Halstead is here in Chicago, and one of the issues that some of the residents in Boys Town had and from what I read in that article in Philadelphia, is when they had that meeting with the police, it was about how to protect themselves, white LGBTQ people, from, you know, these others that come into their neighborhood that's not from that neighborhood. And so Mm. in Chicago, yeah, you know, and so what happened was in that Philadelphia um, meeting, you had this one community activist that took some of the young people that, you know, they work with, and they went to the meeting, and the young people were looking at her like, wait a minute, this meeting is about us. They're talking about how to keep us away or how to right. you know, how to police us. And so, you know, it's just really interesting because... Well, you know, they, they have that issue across the United States, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the one of the things, you know, that we talk about a lot with, you know, LGBT communities, especially where youth is, our, youth is con- our youth are concerned, is uh, mm-hmm. homelessness, right? Exactly. Homelessness and, um, and, and the um, lack of of jobs, right? The unemployment rate among LGBT youth, right? So that uh-huh. basically forces LGBT youth into uh, less than legal, you know, occupations, shall we say? Uh, right, of, right. A lot of which tend to be um, tend to be, you know, geared towards prostitution and what have you. And um, and for a community that is um, supposed to be out and proud and you know welcoming and all that type of stuff to have this sort of stance. Um, Particularly, you know, where it comes to LGBT youth of color um, right. is really troubling, and you okay. know, it's also troubling. It's also troubling for another reason because you know, because a lot of us know that that you know the people who are taking advantage of these services are not just people of color. With right. respect to uh, a lot of them, are wealthy or. Um, you know, semi-affluent white men, you know, the same semi-affluent white men who are apt to call the police on them when they right. don't want to see these kids in their neighborhood but want to have access right. to their services. Hmm. How about now? Right. You know what we mean, quote-unquote services. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, but see, that's the thing. And this is something that we've discussed on this show on a number of different occasions. And so I'm going to bring it into context as far as how I'm feeling right now, you know, because I've talked about how the white LGBTQ community threw the black community under the bus with Prop 8 in California. 
they put they place the blame on the black community, in particular black Christians. And, you know, we've dispelled that. You know, even if all of the black Christian, you know, um, um, voters actually registered and went to vote, even if they all, you know, voted pro-LGBTQ, it still would not have made a difference. It was a single-digit, you know, percentage. And the thing is, is that they didn't go after the Mormon church. They, you know, they picked the low-hanging fruit, which was the black community. And that's why you hear all this sentiment about the homophobia in the black community as though, you know, it's more in our community than other communities. No, it's homophobia in all of these communities, you know. And, and in addition to that, you know, what pisses me off about this is, again, here we go, and, you know, they're basically playing on the myth of black criminality. And, you know, this is happening. So now that, you know, white LGBTQ people have the right to marry, which is a contract which, you know, has to deal with finances and decision-making, et cetera, et cetera, now – And me, respectability. Is, and respectability. Exactly. Don't forget exactly. that because the yeah, respectability yeah. is important because it, 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 does, it confers a certain amount of protection. Right, no. yeah, right, and and the way I'm looking at all of that, in a nutshell, here we go again. They're throwing people of color under the bus, and then they <laughs> wonder why we don't want to support some of the things, because we know this happens all the time. And then you have these people out here who get angry because we have our own little, you know, um, you know, our own culture. You know, and, and and because we have black groups, we have black bars, and, you know, they get angry. They want to say that we're the ones being divisive, but that's not the case. We can't trust you, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just amazing, amazing. I mean, do you, do you understand where I'm coming from, Raina? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, the more, you know, and see, this is the thing. What they're striving for is, quote, unquote, normalcy, you know, in their eyes. And what I mean by that is they're trying to shed any type of oppression that may be tethered to them. So whether they're LGBTQ, whether they're an atheist or non-believer, whether they're a furry, what the hell ever is going on out there. And they're trying to make it more palatable to the mainstream. Yet they want people of color to, to march with them and to protest with them but then at the end of the day, they don't give a damn about what's happening with us. And now with this so-called alliance throwing us under the bus even more so, you know, and and then you wonder why we run for the hills. And especially with the LGBTQ community, they have not even dealt with the racism, the sexism, and the white male privilege in their own communities. And so it's just this vicious cycle. And, you know, People of color are, you know, now that we have the technology and we can talk to each other and share, you know, it's like, you know, we're like, wait a minute, hell to the gnaw. And then they get angry, white people do. I mean, there is a reason for that. So, you know, the whole thing is just crazy. And speaking of identity politics, oh, Lord, let me read something to you. So Richard Dawkins says, Identity politics is surely one of the greatest evils of our age. Stand for yourself as an individual, not a representative of a tribe. Let me repeat. Mm. Richard Dawkins said, 
Identity politics is surely one of the great evils of our age. Stand for yourself as an individual, not as a representative of a tribe. Oh, really? And I'm going to go ahead and call bullshit right now because That's every said, time really something happens, yes. yeah. Yes. every Tell time it, right? there's a terrorist, a, a terrorist action, and let's first of all let's let's also go ahead and uh, and talk about something else when it comes to certain white people. Um, right, terrorism, right. according to certain white people, only right. happens when brown people do it. Hey now. So, or people from, or or people who are uh, not regarded as ethnic whites do hey. it. So, so that's the first thing. But anytime a, a a person who happens to be Muslim commits an act of terrorism, it is always they are always expected, or, or people who are also Muslim are always expected to somehow answer for that. It's the same thing when it comes to black people. We don't ask for that. That is foisted upon us. We didn't ask to uh-huh. all be grouped by race and by category. Our society does that. And whether we decide that we want to engage in that or not, we are we are subject to those designations. So it's, it's uh-huh. not up to us to to stop with the identity politics. It's up to it's up to white people to dismantle this system of white supremacy that benefits exactly. them and makes us uh, that that um, that disadvantages us. That's what that's what they need to do. So exactly, um, yeah. If anyone's responsible for identity politics, is white people. So you created that evil. You deal with it. Yeah, again, it's up to you to to deconstruct and dismantle it. We can't do mm-hmm. it. Especially half of you all don't listen to us anyway. You know, mm-hmm. so the whole thing is just crazy, and especially coming out of Richard Dawkins' mouth. And what I mean, I mean, I, I've been saying for a while they need to take his Twitter account away. Maybe someone needs to give him a grant to re- for some research, give him something to do. You know, because <laughs> you know the thing is, is that his family's wealth came from slave trading. That is a well-known fact. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this, and you know he's Mr. Atheist of the Year at some point with some organization. And, you know, he's, you know, a quote-unquote leader in this community identifying as an atheist and identifying as being part of an atheist movement. That's identity politics, my dear. When you mm-hmm. identify yourself as a libertarian, Guess what? That's identity politics too, my dear. So I'm just trying to understand. When you identify Christians as idiots or morons or whatever you want to say they are, you've done the same thing. But he does that. He labels all religious people as somehow unintelligent. It's ridiculous. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, with that there, you know, <laughs> you know, some of the things that we've seen, not only in the secular community, but the American, you know, culture and the global culture, as far as, you know, some of the things that we see white people doing, they're trying to force us to assimilate. Okay, mm-hmm. so when if we do something that's you know, that they can't control or something that they don't approve of, then, you know, it's called, you know, being divisive. And so then they'll say something, well, why can't you be more like us? Or or, mm-hmm. or they'll point out one of their, another minority group, which is, again, anti-blackness, and say, well, why can't you be more like the Asians? And what I will give the Asians credit for Or why can't you be more like Ben Carson? 
<laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, you know, I have to give Asians because, I mean, they've been here. They have been out here marching. They've been saying Black Lives Matter, too, and they are rejecting, absolutely rejecting that bullshit because they know it's white supremacy. But you're right. You know, why can't you be like Ben Carson? Why can't you be like Alan Keyes? Why can't you be like Walter T. Williams? For those that don't know, I used to be a black Republican, and so I – you know, I've done a lot of reading and research on these people. I've met a few of them, you know, and as people, I like them, you know. And then my politics was in line with quite a bit of what they were saying. But, you know, as as some of the seniors and elders that were in my life, family and non-related, they told me to live a little. And I lived a little. I lived a lot. You know, my rhetoric has changed. Okay, <laughs> so, you know, I'm not a Democrat either. I'm more of an independent, you know, and, the, you know, what we're seeing out here right now, this is ridiculous. But, you know, um, yeah, you know, I call it forced white supremacy because when they try to force you to assimilate and force you to comply and, 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 and you know, emulate what they deem as normal or average or, you know, what they approve of, is you know again forcing us to try to see ourselves and you know as they see us and you know again when we were talking earlier you know about <laughs> what's happening in this country when white people commit a crime they're humanized oh well, he was mentally ill oh he was a lone wolf or abc whatever you know and we dispel that last week that mentally ill thing that's a lie that's not true. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, they, they want to humanize the white folks, but then they dehumanize people of color, namely black people and Latinos. Oh, they were an animal, or they were like the Incredible Hulk, or, you know, the Tasmanian Devil. Just all of these things. I mean, hell, look at what they just said about Serena. <laughs> you know, and I'm just sitting here, and it's a long history of white people comparing black athletes to animals. You need to go mm-hmm. look that up. And that column that um, Dr. Cronk, Brittany Cooper, wrote was an excellent article. Raina had put it on my wall. I just didn't um, repost it, but it's a great article. But, yes, you know, white people are humanized and black people are dehumanized. And it's important that we recognize that and we understand what's happening because this happens over and over, and this is something that we've been stressing on this show. The stuff that we see happening now this is not new. It's the same playbook. It's just mm-hmm. different players. But the game is still the same. But the stakes are higher for us. And so I posted an article about the Supreme Court um, about a week ago, and it was talking about how they're getting ready to hand our ass back to us again. You saw what happened with the Voting Rights Act, Section 5 struck. I've been telling you guys since that happened mm-hmm. that they were going after Section 2 next. Please read. Please go out there and read. You know, I'm not doing this to spin my wheels. I want and I need for you to understand what's happening because this is serious. And for those of you who are planning to leave this country, if Donald Trump or Ted Cruz, you know, if either one of them are elected, there's no need for you to leave because when something happens in the United States, it's a global impact. You can't run and you fucking can't hide. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, what's interesting, because someone was asking me the other day, we were laughing because, you know, I said I'm rooting for Jeb, right, <laughs> on the Republican side, because I know Jeb won't beat 
you know, any of the Democratic contenders. But, you know, it was interesting because they said if I had to vote for one of the Republican candidates, they asked me which one. And I said, you know, I wouldn't vote for any of the ones that are running now. I said, you know, to be honest with you, if I'm going to vote for someone who's out here and I know what their positions are, I'm like, we may as well vote for David Duke. We know where he stands. Really? We know really? what he's about. So you know, I mean, really, so I was listening to a podcast mm-hmm. and they were saying that about like it, like think about think about what the field looks like right now and think about if even a John McCain or a Colin Powell could even run today. And I think right. the answer to that is clearly no. Colin Powell right. would be running about where Bobby Jindal was running if he was running exactly. today. You know, mm-hmm. because it's just mm-hmm. a different party. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's why I'm sitting here. And I'm looking at this, and, I mean, I know there are some people out there that don't believe in voting. You know, (laughs) you have a right not to vote. But a lot of people lost their lives to ensure that we had the opportunity to vote. But, you know, the whole thing is it's a trip. But, I mean, what I I find funny in the secular community, and we're going to get into the show in a little bit, you guys. You know, this is kind of segueing into the show today. But, you know, especially in the secular community, now you have people out here, you know, critiquing, if you will, you know, um, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, and, you know, they may as well throw Hitch in there, too. You know, some people are like, we don't speak ill of the dead. And I'm like, it's not like he's going to come back and haunt your ass. You know what I mean? And and Mm -hmm. these are things that, you know, that were said and that were done. And it's interesting because now we have people talking about the Islamophobia of Harris and Dawkins. And Raina and I have been talking about that since 2012 on this show, you know, Mm -hmm. different places. And we've had people get angry with us because we dared to challenge and critique, you know, three of the four horsemen in public. We even had a video made of us, and, and they were like, how dare you? Remember that, Raina? You know, about yeah, the fact that we <laughs> that, you I mean, know, it wasn't had, just towards us, but, yeah, right. they, were, they implied us, yeah. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know, so now all of a sudden I'm seeing all these different articles critiquing Sam Harris and his Islamophobia and transphobia and, you know, Dawkins. And I'm like, oh, so y'all finally catching up to the rest of us, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just it's interesting. And, you know, I'm just sitting back and I'm looking, and I am just, you know, I mean, hell, we're going to move on. But I just thought that was funny. But in regards to Islamophobia, I mean, come on, let's just call it what it is, because I've been wanting to get this off my chest for a couple of weeks now. And, in regards to the Islamophobia that's shown in not only the secular community but the American culture, because if you all are reading and, you know, looking at these studies, you know, attacks on Muslims have gone up exponentially. Not only and not just the, Muslims, but Sikhs. Exactly. Oh, yeah, because they don't know the difference. Or they act like yeah. they don't know the difference, you know. No, they don't know the difference. They actually don't. <laughs> yeah, that's horrible. Easy. Uh, you know, yeah, they don't yeah know. you don't but see, this is the thing. Raina, let's just call it out for what it is. The reason why white people in general have a problem with Islam is because Islam is not a white religion. Mm-hmm. It's primarily a black and brown religion. That is the problem. 
And so what I find, you know, interesting and somewhat amusing is the backpedaling I see of the Republican Party, especially Lindsey Graham, and then what we just saw, um, Paul Ryan and all of them backtracking what Donald Trump said, saying we are not declaring war on Islam. And, you know, they're saying that ISIL, or as they call it, ISIS, um, you know, they say that that particular group there is using Donald Trump's rhetoric as a recruiting tool. You know, I, I, I'm not really mm-hmm. sure. I have not seen it. I'm not looking for it either. If someone sees it, please inbox it to me. I mean, but it doesn't. I mean, I've seen, I've seen, um, I've seen things where people were, you know, articles written about um, how they use Fox News rhetoric, you know, as um, mm-hmm. recruiting material. So it wouldn't shock or surprise me that. Um, Donald Trump, you know, clips have found their way into their propaganda or whatever. So, you know. Exactly, exactly. And, again, Islam is not a white religion. That's the problem. Whereas Christianity is considered a white religion by many, many people. And they understand Christianity. They know how to manipulate people with Christianity, they know how to control people with Christianity, and personally, this is how I feel. The reason why they're backtracking and, and, and apologizing, because when you look at things from a global standpoint, there are more black and brown people on this earth than white people. Mm-hmm. It's just that in America, that's not the case. And so the way that I'm seeing this and what's happening now because at this point, I think a lot of white people, due to their fear and insecurities, they're losing their damn grip on reality because they are they are starting to see that they're losing some power or privileges, if you will. And But the thing is, is that the way that this, this world is set up, you know, it's a direct contrast to what you see in places like Ferguson and a number of these other small towns where you may have you know, a a higher percentage of black and brown people, but the minority white population controls everything. Mm -hmm. Just look at it that way. That is what is happening now. You know, their population is declining, but yet they still have the power, and they want to hold on and maintain that power. So, I mean, that is my view on, you know, a lot of that, and, you know, it's much, much more but it all, you know, the bottom line is Islam is not a white religion. And that's my opinion. And so it was just interesting because I saw Paul Ryan on Meet the Press today, and he was talking about the IRS going after right-wing organizations and how, you know, they put a stop to that. But the thing is, is what gets me is the black and brown people, when, when they commit some type of, you know, atrocity in this country, they're quick to label it, you know, terrorism, you know, because that's what they started calling the quote-unquote gangbangers, you know, in the black and Latino communities saying that they're committing domestic terrorism. That's, That's the talk. When Occupy Wall Street, which were primarily white male anarchists initially, they called them, you know, domestic terrorists. You know, you have these peaceful people of color out here protesting. And they are labeled as domestic terrorists. It's important that you guys understand this and that you go and look it up. But, you know, you get white people going in and shooting up a whole damn lecture hall. Oh, they're just misunderstood. And then they never yeah, white... they never bothered to investigate if it's tied to thing larger. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, exactly. It's ridiculous. 
Right. And so, I mean, I'm just sitting here and I'm looking at this because, you know, you have these right-wing organizations out here getting their 501c3, living tax-free. And to be honest with you, you know, they want to talk about ISIS and all of those different organizations and say that they're, you know, breeding, you know, domestic terrorists. Well, let's talk about these right-wing organizations. As far as I'm concerned, you know, it's just an incubator for angry white men. What are we going to do? Or am I looking at this, you know, am, am, am I off the charts, Rain? Am I looking at this the wrong way? No. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just interesting. And so, you know, we talk about self-hatred and all of that, especially when it comes to black people, you know, um, that's one of the tropes or one of the narratives that, you know, we hear quite often, oh, well, that's just a self-hating black person. Now, you know, what I find interesting now being played out in, you know, this political arena is basically this scenario with, you know, Rubio and Cruz, who are both, you know, Latino or Hispanic or however they identify. They're sons of Cuban you know, immigrants. Yes, and so, you know, they're both, you know, are from, descended from, you know, those immigrants. And what's interesting is they are the two main people <laughs> in the media trying to say, no, you know, illegal aliens can't stay, and we got to send them illegal immigrants back to it. And so, I, you know, I'm looking at that as self-hatred to a certain degree, and it's just it's interesting how it's being played out. And, and you know, the way that I'm looking and seeing this with those two in particular, you know, in, in the position that they're being put in, you know, by, you know, certain factions of this country, it's like, you know, in order for them to win the presidency or, or any type of, you know, powerful or authoritative, you know, position, they have to pledge their allegiance to white supremacy, so it's just it's just you know I'm learning so much with this you know with what's happening in this country and you know one thing that I will say is ever since you know I fully embraced my secularism and started doing more research and more reading you know my my understanding of these situations have grown and so, you know, it's just interesting because, I mean, they had the same fear with Barack Obama. They didn't want him giving table scraps to blacks. You know, he's just going to help his own people. So, again, a lot of this stuff is not new. It's the same game. It's the same narrative. You just got different people out here talking about it and different players in the game. But, you know, we have to learn how to react to these things a lot differently. And so that is where I stand on those things. Did you want to add anything, Raina, before we go into the topic? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> All right. So today we're going to talk about Black America, New Deal or Raw Deal. Again, Black America, New Deal or Raw Deal. And this is part one. We'll do part two next week. Now, um, when I do these shows, I pretty much tell you guys, you know, where a lot of the material is coming from. You know, some come from different places on the Internet, but, you know, some of these comes from books. Now, there are two books 
that I recommend that everybody put in their library. The first one is When Affirmative Action Was White by Ira Katz Nelson. I'm always, you know, making reference to that book. That's a good book to have in your library. Mm -hmm. The second book is The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America. And this was written by Dr. Khalil Muhammad, who just stepped down from the Schomburg Museum because he's now going to be a professor at Harvard. So, you know, congratulations, Mm -hmm. Dr. Muhammad. Um, So, I mean, but these are two very good books. And I just found another book, you know, and um, I just ordered it, so I haven't had a chance to really peruse it, but it's called Becoming Black, Creating Identity in the African Diaspora, and it's written by Michelle Wright. You know, I want to make sure that I included, you know, some some women, you know, authors, you know, as we go on this journey together. And so, you know, we're going to talk about the New Deal, but in order to put this in context, you know, there are other things that we're going to have to talk about and talk about what happened then and show you how it has an effect on you now because it's, this is still happening. You know, and so it's interesting because, I mean, I've had talks with people and we were talking about reparations. Yeah, I know that's a cuss word to some of you guys. And, you know, what was interesting was right before Johnny Cochran died, it was him and they had this Pan-African Council. And, you know, they were trying to move forward on demanding reparations from the United States. And for those out there, you know, I this is just the truth. The economy, the wealth of this country, as well as many other countries out there, was built on slave labor. Mm-hmm. And that, that pretty much any country made, in the West. Exactly, exactly. The West, you know, the real wasp, the waspy wops. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and it's important that people understand that. And one of the reasons why some people are rejecting, you know, black people receiving reparations is because they're saying, well, there are no more slaves alive. And I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> you know, but you're still reaping the benefits from that era. You know, and, right. and in addition to that, you know, my grandmother, her mom was a slave, and my grandmother is mm-hmm. still alive. You know, so they're children. But in addition to, you know, slavery, we need to add in what happened during the Black Reconstruction, with Jim Crow and even the systemic institutionalized racism that we are enduring now that, you know, all three of the candidates, you know, acknowledged that last night, you know, during the debate. But, I mean, we're still being, you know, negatively affected by that and impacted by that. So, I mean, when you Mm -hmm. hear people making the argument for reparations, I think it should extend beyond just slavery. Because, like, even now, you know, especially with that mortgage bubble, you know, a lot of these, you know, companies and banks are being forced to pay fines because people of color were given, you know, higher interest rate loans. And in insurance, you know, like when I, you know, get car insurance, my rates are a little bit higher because I live in an ethnic neighborhood. Right. And so it's just... It's a lot of things that are happening, 
And we post these articles on Facebook and Twitter and all of that on purpose so that you all can see. And so I've made some updates to the website. If you all get a chance, go out to peopleofcolorbeyondfaith.org. Again, peopleofcolorbeyondfaith.org. And some, you know, changes have been made and it's going to be next year, you know, we're going to move forward. We're going to pick our project back up and we're going to run with the ball, period. But so we have to talk about these things. So the first thing I wanted to do was to give you all a quote by W.E.B. Du Bois. No more critical situation ever faced the Negroes of America than that of today not in 1830, nor in 1861, nor in 1867. More than ever, the appeal of the Negro for elementary justice falls on deaf ears. Fourths of us are disenfranchised, yet no writer on democratic reform says a word about Negroes. That's true today mm-hmm. also. And so, you know, we want to talk about how discrimination, you know, is pervasive. And even when they put together the New Deal and the Fair Deal, you know, initiatives, how, you know, they had to make concessions to the Dixiecrats or the Democrats of the South. And basically, you know, these were people who were definitely proponents of the Jim Crow law. And they wanted to maintain their dominance or superiority over blacks. You know, let's just call it for what it was. And so when a new when the New Deal came along, some people felt that it was the last, you know, victory dance for Jim Crow. And just like in today's era, you know, with you know, Black Lives Matter coming along And that's a very important movement. And one of the things I want to stress between the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement, and the Civil Rights Movement of the 60s and 70s is the Black Lives Movement is more of a human rights movement, you know, and I think that's how they prefer to be identified as, as a human rights movement. And so, again, you know, all of this, is, you know, perpetual cycle. And it's important mm-hmm. that we pay attention to what's happening. So, you know, what's happening with affirmative action, you all see what has been going on with that Abigail. You know, um, the young woman who sued because she was not admitted into the University of Texas and she blamed it on the black people who were, you know, admitted even though they had higher test scores than her, even though they had higher GPAs than her, and but yet were supposed to be inferior, especially, you know, but not just Korea. that they had higher GPAs. They were like there were like four hundred and some odd, you know, uh white students who had lower GPAs than her that were exactly. admitted. So like why exactly. don't you take it why don't you take issue with those people? You know? Exactly. And and not only that, she should take issue with the legacies. We all know how this legacy, you know, system works. You you know, there is no way anyway, I'm just gonna say it's a, there are a lot of people that were admitted and are admitted to certain institutions and not because 
you know, they have, you know, the intellect, but it's because they have the right last name. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just interesting, but, you know, it's important that you guys understand that and see how all that, you know, plays in history and what's happening now. Now, there's a lot of things that I actually want to talk about, but um, I'm going to give you another quote, and this is coming from The Condemnation of Blackness. And it makes a reference to when affirmative action was white. So that's why those are the two main texts that I tell you guys to put in your library. You know, these books will definitely change some of your thinking and some of your understanding as to what's happening and what has happened in this country. But it says here, liberalism fueled immigrant success even as racial liberalism Foundered on the shoals of black criminality. Now, we've talked about the myth of black criminality, and we'll double back to that a little bit later. It says here, from the New Deal through the post-World War II period and for decades beyond, the federal government, through seemingly race-neutral, functioned as a commanding instrument of white privilege. It was a period when affirmative action was white, according to historian Ira Katz-Nelson. At the very moment when a wide array of public policies was providing most white Americans with valuable tools to advance their social welfare, ensure their old age, get good jobs, acquire economic security, build assets, and gain middle-class status, most black Americans were left behind or left out. Okay? And so... You know, this is something that, you know, we've talked about and, you know, it's, it's important that you all get this because, you know, you have these code words or trigger words or what have you. When you hear them talking about states' rights, okay, it, it basically, you know, is talking about allowing the states to determine who is eligible for A, B, C, D, and E, even though it's federal money. And so this is one of the reasons why we say that it's important that you know who your state legislators like uh, legislators are. It's important for you to know who your mayor, governor, you know, your aldermen, commissioners, whatever, the dog catcher. It's important that you know who they are because all politics basically is local. And what happens on a local level affects you more than what happens at the federal level. So, you know, and what was happening then um, – was with the New Deal, in order for that to be passed, um, you know, the, the Republican Party, which was the party of blacks at that time, you know, they had to make concessions and make a deal with, you know, white racist Dixiecrats and, you know, racist Democrats, especially the ones from the South that wanted to continue mm-hmm. to place black people under their thumb of Jim Crow. And so... What happened was that the only way the bill was going to pass was to get some of the Democrats' votes. So there had to be some, some you know, concessions made. And with those concessions, what they did in an effort to make sure was the federal government, you know, as part of the, you know, the deal, they passed the money down to the states and allowed the states to allocate the funds to people that they deemed as worthy. And that was how they were able to, you know, systematically, you know, exclude a lot of blacks from receiving, you know, from these programs. And going back to Abigail there, you know, what she doesn't seem to understand is that white women benefit the most from affirmative action. 
it's not the blacks. You know, white people benefit white women, benefit the absolute most from that. And, you know, she's young. She's young. And, you know, and but, you know, there are a lot of people behind her. And, you know, it's unfortunate because a lot of people in America don't know their history, especially white people. And so, you know, it's just interesting um, when you start talking about these political decisions in this country, you know, you need to pay attention to how it affects public policies now, you know. And so um, <laughs> it was just, you know, when you go back and you read some, and, oh, I was going to tell you the name of another book. I told you about Michelle Wright, sorry. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and when you go and you look up some of this information, of that day, a lot of, you know, people of color, black people, they were kind of ambivalent to the New Deal. And, you know, they <laughs> had reason to be skeptical. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, he was one of the ones out there, and he saw, you know, what could possibly happen, you know, with the New Deal and how blacks were not necessarily, you know, um, factored into that equation. And it's just interesting because, you know, you saw a lot of, you know, rhetoric coming out of the mouths of people like Booker T. Washington. And I'm going to read some stuff from um, them a little bit later. But there is a paper called the Oklahoma City Black Dispatch. This was then. And it said, all in all, Negroes have been given fairer and more impartial treatment by governmental agencies in recent years than ever before in the history of the republic. And so, um, and and that was not true, you know, because you hear that same rhetoric today. And so, you know, the New Deal was about Social Security, and even with Social Security, if you go back, domestic workers and agricultural workers or agrarian workers were not eligible to get Social Security initially. And most of the agricultural workers and domestic, you know, domestic help were black people. And so mm-hmm. they were denied Social Security. They were denied. Um, did you know, Owen, oh, did you know that, like, domestic help, uh, domestic help only recently um, got federal protections in this country? I think it was in 2013 that exactly. domestic, domestic workers just got protections. There you go. Yep. You know, and you know, yeah, and most people didn't and, know And a that. lot of that, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, domestic work is primarily occupied by women of color. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, this is why we call this type of stuff out and encourage you to go and and do some research because it's a lot of this stuff that's happening, you know, um, even with the labor market. You know, that was part of the New Deal as well. However, you know, what was happening then was basically black people or, you know, yeah, black people were given jobs that had a lower pay and, you know, a lower status. And, you know, in in some of the white workers, yeah, they got unskilled jobs, but they got first crack at those jobs and then they were paid more. And in many cases, they were trying to discourage blacks from joining unions and being a part of that. And this is why, you know, we talk about the history of this country. And when, you know, I tie it into our secular world, that's why it's important for you guys to know who Asa Philip Randolph is. 
Right. It's important for you guys to know who he is and the important work that he did with unions. All of this ties into each other. And, you know, again, we can go back and, you know, encourage you even more. But, you know, black reconstruction, that was a disaster. And mm-hmm. that that preceded the New Deal by 60 years. So this is something that has been going on for, you know, a long time. And it's just, you know, it's, it's just to me, I get upset about this. I really get upset about these things because people don't know their history. And then when we come out and we tell them what's happening and tell them about this history, they don't believe us. That's black and white. And then they go look it up, and they're floored. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, um, one of the things that, you know, one of the policies of the New Deal, you know, created the Federal Housing Authority. So I'm going to read another um, quote from The Condemnation of Blackness. And so it said, The preceding half century of increasing statistical segregation and expanding residential segregation naturalized black inferiority, justified black inequality, intended to mask black counter discourses and resistance, shaping race relations into the second half of the 20th century. Although by the 1930s, the statistical discourse on black criminality in the urban north was far more contested than it had been in the 1890s. It remained largely rooted in segregationist thought and practice in the competing visions of blacks' place in modern urban America. And I'm sure many of you all have heard us talk about and other people talk about how there are two different Americas. You have a black America and you have white America. And, Mm -hmm. you know... (laughs) It's interesting, especially when you see some of these political candidates or, you know, politicians, when somebody, you know, asks them a question about these things, like seeing a deer caught in headlights. But one of the, you know, um, policies, like I said, it created the Federal Housing Authority with the New Deal. And, you know, it was a governmental agency. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it was under the guise that they were going to make everything equal across the board for blacks and whites. And that's not true because, you know, the economic gap got wider, you know. um, (laughs) With the Federal Housing Authority, what they did was they shut a lot of blacks out, especially we've talked about these white suburbs that circle Mm -hmm. the city. And blacks were basically relegated to certain parts of the city. And they were not allowed to move and purchase home and build homes in a lot of these white suburbs. You know, a few may have made it, but the majority, not so much. And that was done on purpose. So the government was supposed to be shielding black people from discrimination, but what they were really doing was empowering whites, empowering their economic and political, you know, stand even more. And so, you know, when I look at this and we talk to people about these things and they're like, you're making this up. No, this is history. Go and look it up because we talked about redlining. We talked about redlining. We talked about these cities, these white enclaves or suburbs that surround the city. Those were created 
they were given, you know, um, VA loans and all of that to purchase these homes. You know, and, you know, we won't even talk about the GI Bill allowing them to go back to school and how blacks were, you know, excluded. And that's where it comes back to the state's rights, if you will. That's another one of their buzzwords. Because when the federal money was pushed down to the state, then the state basically hired people to be administrators, and they were able to designate who was eligible and who was not. So this is how they were able to keep black people out of the equation. And this is what we need for you guys to understand, you know, and and this is happening. And I'll go more in depth into that, you know, um, in a few minutes because it's just it's important that you understand what's happening, how it affected us then, and how it affects us now. You know, because even today, you know, I talk about, you know, (laughs) people get mad, and I'm okay with this. But, you know, the way that I see a lot of these cities is I feel like, you know, many of these cities or urban areas are like black reservations until the white people decide they want to move back in. Then they call it gentrification. I call it deporting black people out of the city. And this is happening. And it's been happening over and over. And Ira Katz-Nelson has another book. It's called Fear Itself. And it specifically deals with the New Deal and the racist history behind that. And, you know, again, it plays into, you know, reality now. I mean, you've seen on the news how these different, you know, large banks, you know, the ones that are too big to fail, how they're being fined because, you know, they were taking homes of minorities, totally decimating, you know, minority wealth. Although I haven't seen anyone go to jail for that yet, but, you know, this is what is happening. And this all came with, you know, the, 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 you know, the head nod, the agreement of the government and the backing of the government. And so, you know, instead of breaking down the walls of segregation, it actually increased the segregation and pushed blacks into areas that, you know, were designated for them. And even with, you know, because you have a lot of, you know, people of color that rent, if you go and you do some research, you'll see that most of these, you know, landowners are rich white men. And what's different between then and now is with this bubble that we just went through, and we're still in a bubble. I mean, let's not get it twisted. But now you have a lot of corporations that are now landowners. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this and they're like and they're this... rental they're rental securities now. Rental exactly. rental back securities now. So we're all, exactly. and not just that, but the other thing is is that with the housing crisis and combined with the fact that wages are are stagnant, um basically has a lot of people um, who are generally in that age range of owning a home or looking to own a home, which is like usually about thirty thirty so thirty or so and above, a lot of those people are looking for apartments. There aren't enough apartments in this country, <laughs> especially in urban areas for them all to have. So what does that do that artificially drives the prices of apartments up so there's just exactly. like this there's this real there's this real housing crisis that is building across the country. 
and it's exactly. and it's it's only getting worse. Exactly. You know, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and it is happening across the country. And you know what's interesting is during the debate last night when they were talking about a fifteen dollar minimum wage so that people can afford a one or two bedroom apartment. That's not how that works. You know, mm-hmm. even if they raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, these people are going to raise their rent. That is how that works. <laughs> you know, it's like mm-hmm. you ain't put a lot of thought into that, but. You know, it's just, you know, again, and this is all being, you know, um, allowed, you know, by the federal government. And so it's just. (laughs) And then some people have this and some people believe that the answer to all of this is to eliminate um, private um, private housing in terms of, um, you know, these multifamily units, apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. Right, because technically in in most cities what they they don't actually own the land, the city owns the land, the city can take it back at any time. What you really have when you have um a deed in the city is you have a deed for use, right, right. so the idea that some people have is to essentially to revoke all private uh, uh property held in private hands in terms of these multifamily apartment units and to make all of them public housing there and thereby stabilize the rents and make them affordable for everyone. Right. That's what some people have said. And I, and honestly, I think that's, I think that's probably the best way to go. I mean, you know, there's no reason that we can't have public housing, like housing, you know, and people need things to live. The things that we need to live and thrive are food, clothing, and shelter. We all know these things, right? Food, water, clothing, and shelter. We all know uh-huh. these things. So at the very minimum, we should all have access to those things. And exactly. if we can't, if if by working, we cannot access these things. I'm not talking, like, frankly, it shouldn't matter whether you're working or not working. But right. to me, but since we're talking about working people, we're talking about working people, people who work, you know, 35, 40, 50, 60, you know, however many hours a week, not being able to afford even a studio apartment uh-huh. in, in the in the area in which they, they live and work. You know what I mean? Where they work, right. they can't live anywhere close to that. And so for me... It just makes sense. Like, we should just eliminate all private multifamily housing in these cities, and we should make affordable housing available to everyone, regardless That's true. of of their, um, their income. I mean, there are cities that already have that. There are cities that have beautiful public housing. And you mm-hmm. wouldn't even know it. I mean, everyone lives – everyone has a, a – a, um, a a a a a high level you know what i mean base level of of lifestyle right what? and it doesn't have to be about oh well you know i work 60 70 hours a week so i should have this and i should have that everyone gets a a, a basic quality of life and you earn if you earn more, yeah, you have a few more luxuries. But at the very minimum, people shouldn't have to worry about living in public housing, where 
they can't breathe the air because there's mold. Exactly. Or they live in multifamily apartment units where, like, their landlord drives up the price of rent to astronomical levels. While meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, while they aren't taking care of the building and letting the building fall apart, so that he can, he can kind of force his tenants out without actually forcing his tenants out. You know, right. so that he can so right. he can fix it up and bring in the high rolling apartment dwellers. You know, exactly. this is what needs to stop happening. You know, that's true. That's true. And and three four seven, I saw you. I was going to pull you into the conversation, but you dropped off. If you call back in, we'll you know answer your question. But um, no, I mean everything that you're saying is right, Raina, and. You know, this is why it is important because, in all honesty, you know, there are a lot of white people that do not want blacks in their neighborhood. And that kind of mm-hmm. goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, the LGBTQ. And there's also their a lot of white people who move, move into black and, and brown communities who still don't want their kids going to school with those kids because I was just reading an article about how gentrification mm-hmm. doesn't actually um lead to desegregation because a lot of people are like, Well what about, you know, when people move back into these communities and they you know, they it increases diversity, it b- brings businesses back into the community. But what they found out is that those same white people who are gentrifying, they don't want their kids going to the schools where majority of black and brown children go. So Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And see in and, and that's true. And so, yeah, that's why we want you to go back and look up the FHA, Federal Housing Administration. And, you know, it was created in 1934, but, you know, they they made sure that there were loans available for the construction and repair of homes, and this is why the white middle class flourished. Interesting about what's happening now is it's interesting because the middle class pretty much has been crushed. You're either poor or you're rich. and <laughs> But, you know, the myth of being a middle-class white American, white American, you know, um, white people, they, they, you know, are determined to hold on to the fact that they are part of the middle class. And you're not, you're poor, dear. You're poor, just like the rest mm-hmm. of us. And so it's just, it's interesting when you start looking at this, but again, you know, they were pushing a lot of this down, you know, to the states and allowing the states and local administrators to, you know, implement these plans. And so, you know, tying that into, you know, again, with the Section 8 and all of these other programs out here, they there has been a push, a major, major push to to basically – stop the Section 8 program or to try to push as many people as they can off of that program. But what a lot of people don't know is that these states are still receiving the same amount of money from the federal government. And so when they push people off of Section 8, push them off of welfare, push them off of LINK, they still get the same amount of money, but now they can take that extra money and use it towards their pet programs. But not just that, and not just that, but like you know, um, to take it back to the city of Baltimore, I think I talked about this a while ago. Um, you know, some cities aren't spending the money at all. You know, we have a, a, a public housing crisis in Baltimore, and I won't say they're not spending it at all, but they're definitely not spending it 
on um, on things that the residents need. Um, and meanwhile, exactly. the Federal Housing Administration is coming up with different ways to further restrict residents and their freedom. And, you know, not that I'm an advocate of smoking, but there's a proposal out there that would make it um, illegal for you to smoke in your own apartment or anywhere in the common grounds at any public housing unit. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, smoking is bad and definitely um, children who live within public housing units should not be exposed to smoke because these children who are black and brown tend to live in urban areas where they're already um, at higher risk of things like uh, asthma and other types right. of cardiovascular diseases. So, um, so certainly, so certainly, it's a good idea to minimize these children's uh, children's exposure to to cigarette smoking, as well as the other tenants, right, from a public right. health standpoint. But at the same time, do we want to make it illegal to where someone could possibly be thrown out of public housing for basically lighting up a camel? You know, right? I don't, I right. don't know that I, 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 w- I would want to see something like that done. And so, you know, for me, it would make more sense to invest in, a, and to invest in programs that help people to wean themselves off of cigarettes, and you know, and to develop other healthier habits, rather than to come up with ways to penalize people for, for basically using cigarettes or whatever they use to cope. You know, mm-hmm. with the stresses of life, you know. So, you know, that's just exactly. another thing. Right. You know, it was a story last week. I put it in my queue. I just kind of briefly, you know, looked it over. And it was talking about um, there were certain areas of the country in which the children, you know, when they tested the children and some of the adults, there was so much lead in their system. That Are you talking it, about it Michigan? Created- I think so, yeah. I think it was in Michigan, and mm. I was reading mm. that. And I'm like, this is a shame. I was sitting there. And, the, ma- and the major problem, the major issue isn't so much the water source as the pipes. So there's still a number of houses in this country, um, apartment buildings and what have you, that are still connected to um, to lead pipes. They either have lead pipes in, in their actual homes, in the actual buildings themselves or connected to, um, you know, pipes that um, convey water, right, that are made of lead. And um, so that's one reason why if if you're in your home, whether you know that, you know, you know what the thing your home are like or not, um, generally speaking, when you're in your home and you need to consume water, you should not um, turn the faucet to hot. You should always run water cold unless you're washing your body or washing dishes. And the reason that is is because um, hot water, because of the energy properties of, of heat, um, is going to leach more lead from pipes than cold. So, uh-huh. um, so that's one reason why you should always, if you're going to consume water, consume it cold from, or, or to run it cold from your pipe, from your faucet. But, um, but yeah, there's still a lot of homes in this country 
that are connected to lead pipes or have lead piping in their homes. And so you have to be very careful. But apparently this is a major issue in Michigan right now. Um, and they and they just and they just changed their water source from Lake Huron to um, I think to Lake Flint, and you know because Lake Huron was so polluted, um, but they were still finding that children were having all of this um, these high levels of lead, and so um, I think they're the I think from what I've read the thinking is that the pipes are mainly to blame. So, and, right. and again, right. there's no safe level of light exposure. Um, unlike a lot of other toxins, you know, there are a lot of toxins that your body can, um, you know, that your body can flush out or isolate in some way or um, metabolize into something less harmful. Um, lead is not one of those things. Lead is extremely toxic even in even in small amounts it's it's been found to have um uh, deleterious effects on cognition and uh you know including uh learning and memory um children who are exposed to lead paint tend to have behavioral problems um uh-huh. actually you know one of the things that was tragic about the Freddie Gray story was um when they went back into his history they found out that he was one of um one of several um i don't remember how many children but one of several children i think that were found to um have been exposed to lead in the city of Baltimore and there's still a lot of children in Baltimore city who are um unfortunately at risk of lead exposure from um from paint that hasn't been cleaned up properly or maybe it was just covered over with normal paint thinking that the lead paint wouldn't be able to get through but the thing about it is is that lead is actually sweet tasting so it doesn't take very much for a child um an infant um or a toddler to uh find a paint chip and decide that it tastes uh tastes nice sweet and suck on yeah. it you know so um but yeah, there's like there's there's quite a lot of that going on and and Freddie Gray, I, I believe they, I was reading that he had some behavioral pro- problems, um, probably due to lead paint exposure ex- and um, you know as well as a number of other things, you know. But um, that's that's one thing. That's one thing that's really um, that's one thing that also has to be considered in terms of how we talk about like black and brown children in school and in discipline. Um, a lot of times black and brown children are disciplined more harshly than white children. And um, they're said to have some of them, some people are say that black and brown children have more behavioral problems or that they're, um, they're not um, disciplined properly at home. Um, but it, it actually may point to a wider problem which is exposure to these types of toxicants, um, which, you know, um, populations of poor black and brown people are much more vulnerable to than their white counterparts, even their poor white right. counterparts. Um, you know, I mean, even with like, um, you know, talking about like, you know, things like Katrina, you know, people are living in trailers that have, you know, high levels of formaldehyde and other types of things. So, I mean, there's just all sorts of things that we can talk about. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, okay, our 347 calls back. Let's, let's bring them in for a question. Okay. Whoops. I pressed the wrong one. Sorry. 
All right, let's try this again. All right, three four seven. May we ask who's calling Hi. and what your comment happens to be? Hi, this is Jimmy Spice calling. Hope you all are having a great day. Um, it, the black community there, there's a there's a major problem. The black community has so many problems. It's three sixty all day, right? And it's not typically created by the black community. It's created by outside forces. But it does seem as though historically, ever since the uh, transatlantic slave trade to now, there isn't a consistent, coherent organization umbrella under which so-called black people, African-American, et cetera, can work. So we had the NAACP organized, well... W.E.B. Du Bois left that, of course, because the 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 structure itself wasn't necessarily controlled by black people. You had the U.N.I.A., but Marcus Garvey was shipped off to Jamaica in a in a setup, a sting operation. You had the Organization of African American Unity. You had Malcolm X. There isn't a consistent anything, and even the political parties they flip flop on black issues. When it's convenient, they'll give something. And other than that, they forget the black community. So the causes, it's hard to address when there isn't the mechanism in place. And until that happens, it's an ad hoc black community response. A group in one area doing something, another group probably not even with a nonprofit umbrella using their rent money, then another group in Florida. It's, it's confusion. And I don't see how the problems will be solved without an umbrella, but also without real leaders. I find most of the so-called black leaders are actually in bed with the same uh, slave master system that is oppressing their community. Um, So it's a catch-22 all around. Okay. And so, (laughs) you know, to a certain degree, I'm right there with you. Because, you know, there's some people, you know, especially some of the black misleadership class, if you will, they they want, you know, they want the privileges of white supremacy, but they want it in black face. And, you know, Raina and I have spoken about that for, you know, a number of times. And, you know, we we as a people, black people, we do not have anybody out there um, lobbying for us. And, yes, we do need different organizations out here. There has to be, you know, a, you know, a checks and balances there. However, you know, you have a number of groups out here, and this is one of the problems that we're having in Chicago. So um, what happened during the Black Friday, and like I said, I was there for a few minutes, and then I left when, you know, they started pushing and shoving. You had some black men who, you know, they were pushing the Black Lives Matter, Black Youth Project activists, pushing them to the back and trying to push them away. And these were, you know, young young adults as well as, you know, they have women there. And one of the issues that um, one of the men stated, they, they were basically claiming that, you know, these people are new, they, they don't know the community as well as they do, and they weren't going to allow these, you know, people, these strangers in their sight to, you know, come and try to take over because everybody knows that Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, they've lost control. 
No one is really mm-hmm. paying them any attention anymore. However, when when these black men started speaking more, they were they started talking about the ideology or, you know, how these young folks were ideologues, if you will, with a liberal agenda. So, you know, they said, you know, they wanted to keep a conservative agenda, whereas, you know, they were not for that, you know, LGBTQ lifestyle or marriage or, you know, feminism or any of that. And so they were for the sanctity of, you know, the the, the black family and a lot of patriarchy, you know, and a lot of their responses. And so this is something that this Black Lives Matter movement has been dealing with from the beginning. You have um, black men who feel entitled and, you know, feel as though they have the divine right to guide the community and to control and demand that their needs are addressed first. And that is a layover from what we had to deal with, you know, since we came to this country, but in particular the 50s, 60s, and 70s when, you know, we had the Black Power Civil Rights Movement um, concurrently. And, you know, the black men told the black women they had to choose. They couldn't be Black Power Civil Rights and feminists. And they promised that, you know, women's issues would be addressed. That still has yet to be done. But one of the problems that they that I've seen across the board um, that some people have with the Black Lives Matter movement is because it's led by women and it's right. being led by members of the LGBTQ community. And you have this one particular group of black men specifically who have a deep animosity and resentment for those particular groups of people. So, you know, while we say we need to have some, you know, leaders in position and have organizations out there, you know, to represent us, you know, we need to understand, you know, <laughs> what we're dealing with and the mindset of some of these people. But in regards to the black community, and again, we, we, we've discussed about the myth of black criminality you know, it, this is the thing. Everybody wants to talk about what the problem is, but nobody wants to address the situation and the conditions that created that problem and bring forth solutions to, you know, to roll back the injustices and to bring power, you know, dignity, respect, opportunities, education to those communities. You know, you have too many people who want to see themselves on the front of the newspaper or, you know, being, you know, on all the talk shows or, you know, speaking at every conference, but they don't give a damn about the people that live in the community. They don't give a damn about the issues. only thing they're interested in is is being heralded and, and looked upon as a celebrity or as somebody important. In the yep. meantime, you know, you know, you have this vanguard, especially the old civil rights vanguard. They did nothing. After MLK was assassinated, they scattered, and the only thing they've done was loosen their belt because their bellies got bigger and open their wallets so that the money could be put in it. <laughs> and they've not really done anything, and now that they see that there is a movement that is growing, that is here, and it's not going away. And I'm not only talking about Black Lives Matter. There are a number of different grassroots movements across this country. 
and and they are no longer in charge, the vanguard, the old vanguard, and they're upset, and they're angry. And then you have, you know, a lot of these men, you know, they have, um, you know, men that were formerly incarcerated. They have different groups out here, and they want to lead. And, and you know, when I saw them, you know, pushing on the young people and the women, I got conflicted because I have a problem with that. I have such a problem with that. And many of them are homophobic. Many of them are misogynist. They just, they like sex with a woman, but they don't like women. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is what we're seeing. And this is why, you know, I still have some, you know, I'm conflicted in different areas because I'm like, how are we going to do this? And, you know, how are we going to put this in place? And how are we going to move together, especially when we have, you know, some serious infighting? You know, and a couple of these organizations that these men hate just received millions of dollars in grants. I was going to post it on my wall about what's been happening in the background that people don't know about, but I decided against it because these people are already getting hate. You know, and what people don't understand is when when you're an activist and you're out here, you're putting your life on the line. Trust me, we get death threats. You know, it's been some weird shit going on. You know, and, you know, you, what is it called? I think it's called emotional fatigue. Mm-hmm. And this is why you see yeah. some people leaving and they're disappearing and then they come back after they've had a chance to, you know, kind of regroup, you know, and this is not easy work. And, you know, again, it's a thankless job, if you will. And there are some people out here that are, you know, like you were saying, you know, they're using their rent money. They're using, you know, the little bit that they were trying to save in order to make sure that these 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 activists and, and these movements keep moving forward. And then you you get like like Raina was saying earlier about that pastor E. W. Jackson I think is his last name, whereas mm-hmm. he's decrying you know these movements these grassroots movements particularly Black Lives Matter, he says that they're divisive and they're demonic. Okay, mm-hmm. and so we need to understand where that's coming from. The reason why he's calling it demonic is because, you know, there are a lot of feminists in this movement. There are a lot of LGBTQ people in this community. You know, what they're doing with some of these new movements, they're incorporating everyone. And as I said in the past, if you are not pro-black woman, you are not pro-black. If you are not pro-black LGBTQ, you are not pro-black. You cannot exclude these different people. It's all or nothing. We all live in the same neighborhoods. We all go to the same shitty ass stores. You know, we all are being cheated when we're paying a dollar for a banana. And if you go two blocks over, it's like ten cents at the white store. You know, and so this is happening, and we're doing this. This is all happening to us together. You know, one thing Mm -hmm. I like to stress is that you know, while we're out here and we we're doing these things, it's important to me that I live in the same neighborhood as the people, you know, that I represent and that I love. You know, um, there are some of us that are out here really contemplating running for a political office. 
you know, because we know that in order to get any real power in this country, you you need political power and you need economic power. And that is the only way that some of this is going to work. And so it's, it's, it's kind of complicated, but it has to be done. But, you know, pulling that all to center to what we're talking about with the New Deal today, we need to understand you know, what the New Deal is and what happened because it did not benefit the black community. And the little gains that we did get from it, they've done everything in their power to roll it back. And this is one of the reasons why they got so angry with President Obama with this Affordable Care Act because it's now, you know, basically is is closing that gap between the health disparities of white people and black people. And that is why they kept calling it reparations. And if the Republicans get in office, they're going to roll that back. And they've already Mm -hmm. said that they're going to privatize Social Security. So, you know, there are a number of people that, you know, black people that didn't get Social Security if they were domestic workers or agricultural workers. Now what's getting ready to happen is they're going to find another way to take all that money because we're going to have, oops, another mistake and hedge fund managers win again. And so, mm-hmm. you know, again, we've been given a raw deal in this country, you know, and mm-hmm. it's been from the beginning up till now. And you have people like these men in particular, and, and especially some of these old civil rights vanguards, you know, they need to silence us if they can. And that is one of the first things that Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton did when they flew down to Ferguson. And they flew all the way down there to tell those people to go home and pray about it. But they've been praying Mm -hmm. about this stuff for a long time and nothing has happened. And we need to Mm -hmm. implement action. But they want us to implement the action that they want. And then they had the nerve to ask for some money. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I just got really angry with that. But in order for us to move forward and to understand the present and to be able to put together, you know, a platform of demands, we have to understand the history, how, you know, the you know the laws and the policies that were put in place then, how it affects us now, and what we need for them to strike and roll back and deconstruct. To be honest with you, we're going to have to dismantle and deconstruct the entire system because it's just corrupt all the way around. Right. And, 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 and what's so interesting is, you know, a lot of, again, a lot of black men, they want that white privilege. They want that white privilege. You know, they want white supremacy, therefore, but only with black face. So I'm yeah. sorry. I don't want to, you know, subjugate myself to a bunch of white folks, but I don't want to subjugate myself to a bunch of black men whose only interest is empowering themselves and collecting as many women in trophies. And when I say trophy, I'm talking about children, as they can possibly procure. And so that's why right. I stand on that. Um, can I say can... as a older black man, um, um older than I sound, um, that I think there are two groups. One group is the old vanguard that are gatekeepers, but the average black man, in my opinion, from my colleagues and friends, is not what you described. What we have to have, and I've posed this before, not on your show, is we need a council. We need to have representatives from all the groups come together and be given voting power. We need a committee 
or several committees, the Committee on Education, the Committee on Police Brutality, a Committee on the LGBT issue, a Committee on Black Men and their concerns, a Committee on Females, AIDS. And even though there are many groups trying to do great things, because of different interest groups from the black community and agents, of course, because, you know, they send in agents to disrupt us and throw us off, um, without some way of coming to the table, it seems as though we're going to have one group here, one group there, but how do you solve a, a complete problem when the voices of the people aren't really heard? We need a black United Nations, one for America, one for Caribbean, one for Central America, Africa, etc. And then we get together maybe once a month, whether by webcam or sometimes in person, and review problems because the system has these things in place. They have NGOs, and they have local, and they have national, international. It's impossible, in my opinion, to defeat a system that is so structured, so organized with business plans, with marketing plans that they have, with trillions of dollars backing them, and with military, and with education, churches, mosques, etc., who work with them often, if we are not on that level of organization. It's going to take a time out to come together and compromise. Some of the men have to compromise, some of the females, some of the LGBT, some of the gay, some of the straight, because if we don't compromise, I, I think that we'll we'll pick sides and, and never get much done. Well, I mean, yes, it's definitely going to take some organization. You know, we need to organize and we need to come together. And, yeah, I mean, everybody's going to have to compromise in one sense or another, you know, but what I've seen, you know, firsthand is in many of these situations, they'll have the women there, and the women will, you know, um, get out there and march and fight and do what is, is needed to do and organize and create these organizations. And once you know, they they began to make an impact. You'll see some black men coming in trying to take over, but they didn't want to do the hard work needed to get these movements started, to get these movements stable. And, you know, it's just we're going to have to sit down and talk about this. And the thing is, is the way that I see it, again, you know, we're not a monolith. So, you know, you have different people. Some people may have a liberal agenda. Some people may have a conservative agenda. You get a bunch of people in between, and you have people on the very extremes of that as well. But, yeah, I mean, we're going to have to sit down and talk and, you know, and be rational. You know, but, you know, you have a lot of people, you know, that are of the mindset, is their way or no way? And I think that's unfortunate, you know, it's unfortunate, but, I mean, I understand what you're saying about, you know, having our own UN and, you know, our own organizations out here advocating for us. That's all well and good, but, you know, one of the problems is, you know, there are going to be some people out there that feel as though, you know, it is their, quote, unquote, manifest destiny to to control these things and to guide us. And, you know, this is where some of the problems are going to come in and where they're coming in now. But, you know, it's just interesting because, you know, I'm going to bring it back to center with the New Deal. And, again, you always have different, you know, sets of people with different ideas. And, you know, I talk a lot about W.E.B. Du Bois and, you know, have a lot of admiration for him 
and anyone who knows the history, they understand that there was conflict between W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. And so, again, you know, that that is life. That's how it happens. We're not going to all be on the same accord. But let me let me read something that, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, um, you know, when he criticized Booker T. Washington. And he said, Mr. Washington thus faces the triple paradox of his career. He is striving, sorry, striving nobly to make Negro artisans businessmen and property owners, but is, it is utterly impossible under modern competitive methods for working men and property owners to defend their rights and exist without the right of suffrage. He insists on thrift and self-respect, but at the same time counsels a silent submission to civic inferiority such as is bound to sap the manhood out of any race in the long run. He advocates common school and industrial training and depreciates institutions of higher learning, but neither the Negro common schools nor Tuskegee itself could remain open a day were it not for teachers trained in Negro colleges or trained by their graduates. And so, you know, when I'm reading that, you know, again, there are, you know, we have these different conflicts. You have different people. With Booker T, you know, he's like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and it was respectability politics and, you know, prove yourself to be worthy, you know, you know, prove, you know, you have to prove these things in order for white people to to recognize and acknowledge your humanity, you know, as opposed to, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, whereas why do we have to beg and, 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 and prove ourselves for people to see us as human beings? And so, you know, I'm kind of seeing that now, you know, and again, you we're not a monolith, and you have these, you know, micro groups within these groups, and you have micro groups within those groups, and yes, we're going to have to work together, but it's about sitting down at the table, having some conversation, and having, you know, some respect. And there are some men out there, you know, and some black men that do not feel as though women should be at the table. And they surely don't feel that LGBTQ people should be given rights, you know, and they'll, they'll use their Bible or Quran or whatever as a weapon. I don't know a lot about Islam, so I'm just going to stick with what I know, the Bible. You know, and they try to use that Bible as a weapon to justify the mistreatment of different parts of the community. And that is what happened. That's, you know, the the, the civil rights black power movement was a secular movement. It was a people's movement. And the only reason why, you know, the Bible was introduced into it was because the white nationalists, the racists, were using scripture and the Bible to justify their mistreatment, you know, and dehumanization of black people. And so, you know, it's just, you know, I'm just looking at this, and it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And we're seeing that even now. You know, you have people out here attacking Muslims. You know, we have Islamophobia in this country. You have people out here attacking, you know, um, Latinos and Hispanics, you know, and it's just, it's horrible because um, 
a lot of people don't realize that the United States is giving money to Mexico for them to discourage people from Central America, namely, you know, the Honduras and, you know, in that area. They have been given money to stop those people from coming to this country. And so this is what I mean when I say it's the same crap over and over. You just have different players, you know, and, and it's a shame. But, yeah, no, we do need to come together and we need to talk about a lot of these things. But, you know, I think it's important that we understand the historical context because, you know, the conditions that we're in now, this was done purposefully. And it was done with, you know, with federal money under federal programs, you know, and it's just, you know, we have to make some changes. And right now, you know, you have a couple of groups out there that are challenging, you know, these politicians. They're challenging the system as we see it now. And it needs to be challenged. It needs to be critiqued. But it also needs to be dismantled because the whole system is corrupt. I don't think that, you know, this is just my opinion, you know, trying to make changes within a system that's corrupt. I I just think it's an exercise in futility. And also it's not our responsibility to deconstruct, you know, white supremacy and, you know, white privilege, racism, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't create this. They did. So, you know, you know that's, that's where I stand, you know, with that there. And I just think it's important that, you know, we understand what's happening because not only are, you know, some blacks not educated on the history, quite a few whites don't understand the history of this country. They don't understand, you know, how the different powers work. You know, I was talking earlier about a system of checks and balances. That's why we have, you know, um, the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. But, um, you know, that's how that is. Is this Mr. Kenyatta? Hi. Hi. And so, <laughs> and so um, again, you know, we need to go back and take a look to, you know, what's happening and why the system was set up the way that it was. And, I mean, it was done with the government's blessing then and now. So how can you work within a system that's been designed to destroy you? Do you mind if I quickly say I don't think that the system will necessarily, between Rome, England, Germany, and America, change drastically because it has been in place. I think um, black, brown people, it behooves us us to do two things simultaneously. One is identify as many possibilities for positive outcomes in this system as possible, but the second is to build our own financial, educational, multimedia, technological, um, medical infrastructure, because I really don't see America and England changing fundamentally to start saying, wow, we're all equal. This is great. Let's love each other. Right. <laughs> no, if they do that, they won't exist. They won't exist because their system is built upon the pain and struggle of black and brown people. Once that changes, yeah. it means that they're out of power. But I think what we can exactly. do is is do what Latinos seem to be doing. They're basically using America and building their own, because I deal with a ton of Latinos in, in business and in my personal life. They're getting somewhere. 
And I'm looking at it like, wow, they're moving ahead quicker than us. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but um, we we have to be we have to be careful with you know that type of comparative you know politics there, because that's also part of anti-blackness. Because when you look at this as a whole, they use black Americans or the black culture as the measuring stick as to how not to be. And, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, we are the measuring stick as to you don't want to be like those people. You don't want to be categorized with those people. And, you know, again, as far as building our own industries, and I'm 100% behind that, you know, absolutely. You know, we need to have our own organizations. We need to have our own technological firms. We need to have our own groceries. I mean, all of that. You know, and and I'm 100% behind that, and this is why we're encouraging people to do so, you know, but as far as the system itself, you know, we will always be here. We're a part of the American culture, and, you know, while, while we may, you know, build our culture up and put, you know, other programs into play, that doesn't mean that we are, aren't subjected to the same laws and policies, you know, that are on the books. We have another caller. Let's let's bring in nine one four. May we ask who's calling and what is your name and your question? Yes, greetings. Uh, my name is El. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Um, you just clarified what I was about to say uh, when the brother spoke on uh, the Latins or the Puerto Ricans, whatever, mm-hmm. that's exactly what they're doing. Um, they're mastering the basics. You know, you, you mm-hmm. look at our Black Wall Street and all of those things. We basically had the basics. It's segregation or, well, desegregation, I guess. All of those things are basically um, what took those things from us. If we start building back our industries, go back to the basics, I, I really do feel we're all right because, um, I feel the best way to deal with these kind of situations is for us to turn in to ourselves again, you know, make us responsible right. for each other. And I I agree. You know, we do need to. And this is the question that I've always posed to people when I talk about black wealth and our ability to build wealth and to build, you know, strong, solid communities. We know how to do that. The problem is how do we keep it? Because what happened in Tulsa, what happened in Rosewood, what happened in Wilmington, what happened in Chicago, L.A., New York, we built that wealth. We built these, you know, these wonderful cities in which, you know, we're the elected officials. You know, we have businesses that are thriving. Happy days are here again. And then you have a throng of, you know, a white mob, if you will, that comes over out of jealousy and starts to try to destroy everything that we built, you know, and that included killing people. Especially in Wilmington, they said the river ran red with blood, and they chased them out of there because they held positions in government and they were running, you know, these different, you know, cities and doing well. And, you know, some of the poor whites, they weren't faring as well. So they attacked. And, you know, this is what's been happening throughout history. So, you know, my thing is is that we can do it. How do we keep it? Because seeing some of that even now, you know, with, with the tea parties, partiers, you hear them talking about white men and jobs for white men and white wealth. 
and what they're doing is they're 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 out here vying for a new social contract. But you know, part of that is anti-blackness, pro-capitalism, and we need to pay attention to that. But you know, again, anti-blackness is an industry. Fear is an industry. Poverty is an industry. We did a show on how expensive it is to be poor. And so I'm right there with you. I know we can build it, but how do we keep it? And, I mean, the the, the most recent example I can give you is the black wealth that was wiped out with the real estate bubble bust. So, you know, where do we go from here? See, that's what's so important about that infrastructure. Um, If we had our own banking institutions, prime example, just like churches, we put so much money in our churches, but we don't control the money in our churches. And I feel that's a major problem. There's one individual in the church that's getting wealthy. And um, some say that they pay tithes to the Vatican. That's none of our business. But again, if these board members who decides exactly what goes on in that church, make it their business to utilize that money and to create a fund with other organizations and churches of, you know, Uh uh, like-minded people, that, that I feel that that would really um, assist us. Security and um, agreement with the government on some levels, higher government, I'm talking about D.C. more so than um, city municipalities, you know, the city okay. that you uh, mm-hmm. live in, would bring about that kind of um, protection, even though just like uh, some people say about Black Wall Street, the government had something to do with that also. Um yeah. It is challenging, but I feel that if we extend our hands to Brazil and Africa and South America, that would be um, also uh, a place of security, just like the IRS, their headquarters is in Puerto Rico. So if we put banking institutions in Africa and in Brazil and in South America, our money would be also secured more so than just, you know, here in the Americas. Um uh-huh. As far as protection is concerned, that's why I feel the government would be the thing because we're not a violent people, you know. No. Um, there's, not a, there's not a lot of us that have guns, believe it or not, considering all the things that go on, you know, against us, not just in our own community. Right. Um, I, I think that would really be a challenge for um, us to establish a rule book and make that one of the laws in the rule book to have uh, guns and firearms. You know, because we're such uh, oh, yeah. compassionate people to to a fault, of course. But um, you know, e- even even this game from from the 1100s when the race war really was taking place, Constantine and all of that foolishness, um, we always there was always more of us than them. So if we had annihilated them, half the things that's happening wouldn't. But we always want peace. And you know, you know if, if you I, go back to history, you know, in this country, you know, because I'm talking about the United States specifically. And, you know, there's a book called Hammer and Hull. And it's talking about, you know, the Great Depression and, you know, farming and, you know, communism, if you will. Um, I read a number of different books. But, again, we've been able to build up that wealth, build up the, the infrastructure, the systems, and I believe we can do it again. I mean, that's something I've never doubted that. You know, but, you know, as I was saying earlier, you just have these different mechanisms in place that try to force us to assimilate, that try to force us to allow them 
to, you know, be a part of what we want. And we've talked about this thing. You know, what's the difference between accommodating somebody and including them? See, some people, you know, it's just the whole situation is just one big old clusterfuck, if you will. And we have to start somewhere. We have to start doing some of these things. Um, I had a couple of guests on a couple of months ago, Dr. Keisha, um, yeah, Dr. Keisha and Daryl, and they started, you know, their own organization, the New Black Coat. So, you know, you may be able to find them out on Twitter and Facebook, but and you can go and listen to the show. But they were talking about, basically, it, it sounded to me, and this is how I envisioned it, that they're starting like a holding company. And so you know mm-hmm. how holding companies are. That's your bank. You know, that's where your money comes from. But under that header, you know, you have these different businesses. And that holding fund finances these different businesses, encourages people. And, you know, that is something that we do need. I've talked about that. We do need to form holding companies. We need to form cooperatives. And, you know, there are some people out here that have a problem with the sharing Economy, And so when I say cooperatives, I'm not necessarily talking about a sharing economy. I'm talking about a cooperative in which we buy things. See, that is what has fueled the success of Walmart. You know, even though we have problems with Walmart and, and slave labor, if you will, but, you know, we have to start thinking that way, you know, how, how it's going to affect us nationally as well as globally. And and that's why I say, you know, anti-blackness is an industry because, you know, earlier when I was talking about how they were trying to herald, you know, Asian Americans as being the model minorities and, you know, again, the measuring stick, you know, that they're using, you know, is that blackness or the myth of black criminality, but blackness is what you don't want. And that's why they compare these other different, you know, you know, communities to us. And that that's one of the things that breeds a lot of some of the, you know, civil issues that we have, you know, within our communities. And we need to understand that and understand what's happening and understanding why they are, you know, encouraging the conflict within the different cultures with one another. And, you know, a good book, is The Condemnation of Blackness by Khalil Muhammad. I'm telling you, this is a good book. And it talks about how, you know, people that were once considered Dutch or Irish or Italian, how they were adopted into the hierarchy or the Venn circle of whiteness. And then, you know, and basically the only real white people are white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, which are British, German, and Western Europeans. You know, that is a real wasp. The other people are ethnic whites, but they need those ethnic whites in place feeling superior in an effort to, you know, um, you know, to keep blacks under control, you know, for the oppression of blacks. And so it all works together, and, you know, it's a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, I, I've been saying that for a while, and there are a lot of things that we can do. But one of the things that I've noticed, you know, especially – you know, within the secular community, you know, you have a lot of people out here talking about A, B, C, D, and E, but they don't want to do anything. All they want to do is sit on panels, talk about mess all day, then go out, drink until they're ready to black out, then Mm -hmm. go eat and start the process all over again. 
and instead of getting out here and breaking a sweat, they'd rather give a $20 donation and, you know, just throw money at the problem. And that's never been the solution to any of this. So we need workers, real workers that are out here that are, you know, something happened most recently in Chicago. You know, and this is something that when I had my group, I was encouraging it because it's like, I, you know, I, I give donations to the Chicago Food Depository. And so, you know, I was trying to get my group to go out there and volunteer with me. Um, they had a walk, and I went and I walked and raised money for that. You know, they didn't show up for that. Uh, you know, and somebody most recently, they had a mobile, you know, food outreach program. That was something that I wanted. Mm-hmm. We can get them to give us the food, and we just hand it out. And it's not something that just has to be done during the holiday season, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas. You know, because I've been known to go out and buy bags, bags of groceries, pack them up, and then go around. And when I see homeless people, just give them a big old bag of whatever it is I bought. You know, and of course there would be socks, toiletries, you know, towels, you know, soap. But we we have to do something. We have to do something because we're dying. And if you I know, may there's say, um... yes, sir. The, the main thing I really hear you speaking to is accountability. You know, um, <clears throat> another reason why I guess it, it's resonating so much, you know, with my consciousness is I have a friend who um, has a business, and he's taught two of his friends uh, the business, and because of him focusing so much on their success, his um, finances have been challenging lately, right? Uh-huh. So. So now these two individuals are growing and progressing, and he's lightly speaking to them about what he's going through. Once he tried to borrow money from both of them, and they both said they didn't have it. So I, um, that's another reason why I'm speaking about the accountability. Right. I recommended to him to him form them of their responsibility to the whole. You know, right. because um, if it wasn't for him and his compassion for them, they wouldn't be where they are today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just like what you're speaking to when you did the walk and all of those things that you participate in to um, assist others and to be that beacon of light in your community. <clears throat> those like-minded people in your environment, in your organization, they say yes, then they, you know, you have uh, recommend you go back to them and initiate that accountability to them. Just like you're saying, some people, they're, they're pleased with their mouth, but their actions aren't there. You know, right? that's why I'm saying about that accountability, because that's really what's wrong with most of us. You know, we could point at a fault, but to do something about it is the fear and the challenge. You know, so once there are numbers, that can bring about the change. But overall, establishing a rule book you know, because without law, you know, there's no guidance. You know, we can go and, back to nature. And, you understand what I'm saying? You can look at ants. No matter what's going on, it could be raining, snowing, well, not snowing, but just say raining, fire, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. If you look down on the ground, ants are still doing what they do. Right. And that's what we need to do. Master the basics. Yes, we must master the basics and stay there no matter what's going on because. You know, there's always been opposing factions against us as a people since the beginning. Well, not since the beginning, but just say the last 500 years or whatever the case may be. Overall, it's what we're going to do about it. We cannot fight against all of these um, opposing forces 
with their weapons mm-hmm. because that's their weapons. So if we go back to the basics, our economy and things of that nature, um, educating, our, well, teaching our own children, training our own children. So come what may, we will be all right, you know. What was you going to say? Well, I was going to say, you know, definitely, you know, but we also have to be aware of respectability politics and, you know, because you have some people out here saying accountability, you know, responsibility, and some of that ties into respectability politics. And that's why I was talking about Booker T earlier, because respectability politics will get us nowhere. It never has. And it never will. And, you know, what's interesting is what was what was once considered, you know, radical thoughts or radical ideas, many of those ideas and, and programs are now mainstream. It's just a part of our life now, and they're mm-hmm. not considered radical. So there are some things that we're going to have to be radical about. But, yeah, we definitely need to build our own infrastructure. I've always said that. And I've always yeah. believed that because, you know, when we try, when you know, when we talk about diversity, especially when we go to some of these mainstream white organizations, corporations, et cetera, countries and et cetera, you know, you know, there's always talk about diversity. And they talk about it, and it's never implemented. But, you know, many of them feel that when they talk about diversity and say that, you know, they're for diversity, I guess it it, it helps to assuage, you know, guilt that they have. You know, because in many cases, you know, yeah, you are racist. And what you're doing is racist, it's hurtful, it's a number of reasons why it's problematic. But at the end of the day, they can say, well, we were trying to encourage diversity and we welcomed them in and we asked them. But then when they get there, you don't do anything, you know, that's that's right. going to benefit them and what they're trying to do. And, you know, we see this all across the board and, you know, almost every community. You always have two or three people who want to be the great white hope, if you will. Mm-hmm. And some of these same people with the same, you know, um, thought process, that actually ends up hurting us, you know, because when we're ready to move forward and make moves and make changes, they're the ones that are saying, well, not now, let's wait, you know, and again, I know this is going to be unpopular, but I've talked about white liberals, you know, a number of times and how there are many white liberals and progressive liberals out there that are racist. You know, and we know what they're saying when we, you know, when we walk in the room, but especially when we walk out of the room. And so, you know, we got to be careful with all of that. But, you know, we're getting ready to shut it down, but we have part two coming on next Sunday. So, you know, feel free, you know, to call in. And um, I'm on Facebook as well as Twitter and Tumblr. So, you know, reach out, friend me on Facebook, Kimberly Veal, and you'll see Black Freethinkers in parenthesis. And, you know, we can discuss this more. And like I said, you know, there's a couple of books out there. But, yeah, no, I'm with you. You know, I'm ready to build with some people. But, you know, my thing is is that if, if I'm going to build with you, we're building for everybody, not just a select group of people. And I'm not taking any promises or promissory notes that, you know, that in the next lifetime we'll get to women and LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera. No, it's now or never. Indeed. So 
Okay, so there you go. But, you know, I thank you all for calling in. I appreciate it. You know, you made some wonderful points. And, you know, again, yeah, we need each other. We need to work with each other. And, you know, again, like you were talking about the infrastructure, I agree. You know, not only do we need our, you know, own banking systems, our own school systems, you know, I I agree with the other caller in which, you know, he was talking about we need our own organizations, and he was talking about, you know, our own UN. And, you know, what's interesting is that a lot of Americans, you know, they're naive, and they don't realize that there really are two Americas. But when, you know, when when we had that... The, the uprising, if you will. I like to call it an uprising, but some people, you know, how fault or take fault with that. So when we had the residents of Ferguson stand up and say no more, you know, there were many white people in this country that were forced to open their eyes to see and to understand because Ferguson just isn't in Ferguson. You know, Ferguson is in Chicago. Ferguson is in Milwaukee, especially Milwaukee. What's happening up there is absolutely criminal, and it needs to be addressed about how, you know, people of color are suffering up there. And so, I mean, and that's why I tell people we still need to look at this globally because even though black and brown people outnumber white people, it is still that small percentage of white people who control the world. And that is what we were seeing in Ferguson. Even though the majority of the population are black and brown people, the municipalities and the power is being held by, you know, a minute or a minority of white people. And so, you know, we need to start making changes across the board. But, you know, I'm going to let that go because I'll go into a whole different talking point on that. But, again, this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And that's what I want you guys to do. I want you to go out and look this information up, do some research. It's going to lead you into other areas and more information. That is what I want. You know, and, and, you know, we love you guys. And I don't celebrate the holidays, but for those of you who do, merry, merry, happy, happy. You fill in the blank, whatever you may happen to be. You know, happy Festivus, you know, Merry Christmas, you know, happy Hanukkah, whatever. You know, just enjoy yourself. Enjoy these next few days. Even if you don't have any celebrations, do something nice for yourself. Or better yet, do something nice for someone else. Put a smile on their face. So we will see you all next Sunday, and I will put more information out about that show later on this week, but next Sunday is part two, and the Sunday after that, I'll be talking about the Liberty Party. So you may want to go and look that up. It was the anti-slavery party, you know. um, So, again, Liberty Party, and... You know, it's a lot of information that we need to go over. But on that note, we're out of here. I thank my callers. I appreciate each and every last one of you. And, Raina, thank you, darling. You all have a good rest of the weekend now, okay? All right. Good night, everybody.